0: I think at this point, even the most casual news consumer has run across a lot of stories like this.
1: The focus of the European debt
2: crisis move today. Where
3: Time the is running issue. out. Here's what would happen if the Eurozone fails. Tomorrow,
2: there'll be a unified statement of support for these European countries to come up crisis with crisis ongoing in, in Europe,
4: the setting the stage for investing
2: well,
0: in- well, so I am joined now here in the studio with somebody who actually understands economics and knows about this kind of thing, um, Alex Bloomberg of the Planet Money team and our staff. Hi, Alex. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, so, so, Alex... Um, I think I speak for all Americans when I ask you this question, and that is, do I have to care about this?
5: I am so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked that question, because we at Planet Money have been obsessed with Europe for the last couple of Yes years. or no? <laughs> the short answer is yes, you, you have to care. It's going to affect your life in some way. It might actually even cause the global economy to collapse, in which case you'll oh. really want to know the story. But even if that doesn't happen, right. it is just a fascinating tale. You know, you hear a report on the news, it's all interest rates, blah, 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 you know, European leaders, blah, blah, blah. But underneath all that, there is passion, drama, soaring hopes, crushed dreams. It's all there hidden in in the news that you're hearing.
0: Really? You don't need to care. You want to care. Well, that's very good news because we have set aside the entire hour of the program today for you to tell that story from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. So, Alex, I'm just going to hand the show over to you. All right, and I say, like from WBEZ Chicago, that thing. No, I just said that. So oh, you, you don't have. Oh, to say I don't that. have to say that. You, no, no, you, <laughs> sorry, just, you can just proceed. <laughs> have you heard the show before? No, <laughs> no you didn't. We you just say today's program. All right, I'll say. You can say today's program.
5: Today's program, Continental Breakup. This hour, we're going to hear the surprising, dramatic story behind the crisis currently unfolding in Europe. I'm sorry. Do I say stay with us? You say stay with us. You say stay (laughs) with (laughs) us at some point before you go. I say it right there. Okay. So say it. (laughs) Say Uh, it. Say it. Stay with us. Act one, Currency of Dreams. The story of the crisis in Europe is really the story of the euro, that currency that almost all the countries in Europe share. Um, But think about that for a second. Why did they ever do that? All these different countries with all these different cultures all deciding to share a currency. Imagine if the United States, if Mexico and Canada all agreed, hey, you know what, we're going to get rid of our own money and start a new money that we'll all share. Think about all the meetings that you'd have to have, all the coordination. And for what? We have our own money now. It works fine. Why would we ever do that? Various Planet Money reporters have been making trips to Europe all year, and you're going to be hearing from them over the course of this hour. Planet Money's Hanajafi walt will be telling the bulk of the story. And we're going to start at the beginning. We spent a lot of time talking to all sorts of people who were present at the creation of the euro, who dreamed and worked for years, decades, to make it happen. Planet Money's Hana walt and our colleague Zoe Chase tell the story of why they wanted it to happen and what they chose to ignore along the way.
6: History takes a long time to unfold in Europe. And the euro was that way. There were no euro coins or bills until 2002, but the dream of the euro had been around for 150 years.
3: But that's all it was, a dream, the territory of artists, intellectuals, poets.
6: Yeah, so we read that read that thing from Victor Hugo, one of the very first calls for a united Europe.
3: Okay, Victor Hugo, you know, Les Mis, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Here's an excerpt from a speech he gave in 1871. And keep in mind, the actual Europe at this time is fighting a brutal war, tearing itself to pieces. Okay, here it is. And we shall hear France cry out, It's my turn, Germany, here I am. Am I your enemy? No, I am your sister. And then he goes on to say, Let us be the same republic. Let us be the United States of Europe. Let us be the Continental Federation. Let us be European liberty. Let us be universal peace.
6: It's nice, right? Yes. I keep thinking that the euro for all these years is kind of like Esperanto. You remember Esperanto, the international language? It'd be really easy to learn. We'd all pick it up and speak one tongue across borders, and then there'd be international peace and understanding. The dream of the euro was kind of like that.
3: But let me ask you, do you speak Esperanto today? No. Do nearly 332 million people carry euros in their pockets? Yes. So what happened?
7: World War II was, you know, such a a catastrophe.
3: This is Pascal Lamy, the right-hand man to the father of the euro, Jacques Delors. Delors is old now. He's too old to give interviews. But Lamy was there at the key turning point. When the euro stopped being a quixotic dream and started looking like a real necessity.
7: It's just after the Second World War that the notion of integrating Europe politically uh, became uh, a serious political idea. Before that, it had been, you know, dreams.
6: But after World War II, it was being talked about in two of Europe's most powerful nations – In France, by people like Lamit, he went on to head the World Trade Organization. And in Germany, by people like Helmut Schlesinger, former president of the German Central Bank.
8: One cannot forget that the whole strength of having a European Union is based on the fact that we never want to have war between our countries, which we have had so much and so terrible.
6: Germany no longer wanted to dominate Europe. It wanted the opposite, actually. It wanted to be a team player, a peacemaker. Germany wanted to be the nicest guy at the European table. Of course, France didn't want Germany to dominate either. Germany
3: would always be bigger, more powerful. So France wanted to link its economy to the German economy. That way, Germany's strength would be France's strength.
6: And also, a united Europe would be big enough and rich enough to become the world's other superpower and rival the United States, which both countries liked. All this was making a once-poetic dream much more appealing.
3: But of course there were problems. Two main problems. One German, one French. For the Germans, the whole sharing a currency thing made them very nervous. They worried it would lead to inflation.
6: And Germans are really scared of inflation. It calls up a bad memory, the hyperinflation of the 1920s, the worst bout of hyperinflation in recent history. You may have heard about Germans carting their money around in wheelbarrows or using worthless German marks to wallpaper their homes. Many people in Germany feel like it was this experience that opened the door for the Nazis to come to power.
3: I was reporting on the euro crisis in Berlin a couple months ago, and it shocked me how readily Germans would bring up the hyperinflation of the 20s when talking about their problems today. Klaus Frankenberger is an editor at the German newspaper, the FAZ.
1: I mean, Germany's always a stability mind, as you know. You know? Order, stability, that's part of our, our collective DNA, I would say. But these historical experiences tell every policymaker, you don't mess around with inflation. Never. You don't do this.
3: So Germany's position in the decades-long conversation that led to the euro was this. If Europe wants to have a single currency, then we can't have all these separate governments out there. We need to become what Victor Hugo dreamed of, a United States of Europe. But the Germans wanted this not for poetry, but to keep inflation in check. They wanted an overarching authority that can say to individual countries, here is how to run your economy.
6: Can you imagine France, no longer its own country, but a member state in a united federation of Europe? Yeah, the French couldn't either. Again, here's Pascal Lamy.
7: The French like Europe if Europe is a big France.
9: Huh?
7: <laughs> but it's something that they drive. Huh? Something that doesn't bite too much into the French sovereignty. It took 30 years of discussion.
6: So for 30 years, the French and the German were saying to each other, the Germans were saying, well, what about our Deutschmark? And the French were saying, well, what about ah, that's our national exactly identity? It.
7: If they were not always saying this, because diplomats and governments don't always say what they have in mind, but that's what they had in mind.
3: And it could have gone on like this, haggling back and forth over these issues, Until this happened.
9: From the Berlin Wall, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg,
6: the wall must go. In 1989, the wall separating East and West Germany was about to fall, and the Germans wanted French support for their reunification. The rest of Europe was still a bit wary of Germany. When you plunge the world into one of the bloodiest wars in history, it's kind of hard to live that down. And here... Germany was about to grow even larger. So France said, "Okay, you can have our support if we all go on the euro. And the French got their way. There would be a common currency, but
3: no United States of Europe, as the Germans wanted.
6: What the Germans got were promises. Promises that all the countries that used the same money would play by German rules. They would guard against inflation. If a country wanted in on this common currency, the euro they would have to borrow responsibly, be careful about their deficits. In other words, to use the Euro, the rest of Europe would need to make itself more German. The rest of Europe seemed very happy to do just that, even if for many countries in Europe, becoming more German was a completely unrealistic dream. Nowhere more unrealistic than in Greece.
8: Our inflation rate was much higher than what was accepted. Our budget deficit was much higher than what was
3: accepted. This is Lucas Zoukalis with the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy in Athens.
8: If you asked uh, somebody in Europe whether Greece would join the Eurozone and you asked that question, let's say, in early, mid-1990s, the answer would have been, you are mad, because I mean, all Greek indicators were far off, no, no chance in your lifetime. When the European Statistical Service produced graphs which showed all the different countries in terms of inflation rates, in terms of interest rates, very often Greece appeared in an insert because it couldn't fit in the graph. Because if your inflation rate is 20, it doesn't fit in a normal graph. So you either have a big graph but it doesn't show anything or you have a reasonable graph and then you have inserts. But Greece
6: was... Greece is over here.
8: Yeah, but Greece was not the only country, but it was one of the worst, and usually the worst.
6: Still, Greece began a national campaign to make it in. And other countries were doing the same.
3: Willingly, even if it meant pain. For instance, Italy. Their deficit was too high, so the Italian prime minister at the time, Romano Prati, said we need a new tax to cut it down if we want into the euro, we have to pay. Beppe Severnini is an Italian journalist who was there at the time, and he talked to our colleague Alex Bloomberg.
4: The mood was so enthusiastic that when Romano Prodi uh, proposed a tax in order to, to sort out our public finances, people, would you believe that, sort of put up the money and didn't not only didn't moan, they say, well, that's something we have to do, we'll do it. And it was a kind of hefty tax, I remember that.
5: And what was the dream? What was it? what was, what were they paying for? What were, in, in the minds of sort of the average Italian? What did what did it represent being part of the euro?
4: Well, to be in the sort of in the Premier League of Europe, number one. Second, to have a stable currency. You know, to be anchored to the to the Deutsche Mark because it was obvious in you know it was obvious uh, at the time and it's still is obvious now that this sort of The engine for these all was Germany. So to say, to have the same currency as Germany is good for everybody. So we want to be in that league and not in this sort of other league with local, weak local currencies.
3: For Greece and Italy and Portugal and even for France, the euro meant a more stable, more prosperous, more German existence.
6: And so in the years leading up to the euro, countries cut spending, reduced deficits. The numbers started to look, at least on paper, A lot more German.
3: So much so that in some cases, it was a little hard to believe. Cases like Greece. In the late 90s, all across Europe, finance ministers and their deputies would meet. They'd gather around tables in Brussels and Paris and Berlin with their rules in hand. And the Greeks were there, reporting their data that they'd made it. They'd met the criteria for Euro membership.
6: According to several people in these meetings, typically here is how it would go. The Germans or the French would say, "We have these rules. Every country has to meet the criteria. Yes, we do. The Greeks would respond. There would be glances around the table. It sure is a good thing we have these rules, someone would say. More glances. Jacob Kierkegaard is with the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and he followed these meetings closely
1: the The leaders of France and Germany and other couldn't really stand up and say, "Look, our uh, data are superior. You are lying, uh, basically, about these data. And that's why we will not let you uh, join the euro. We all knew, and we all know now, and we all knew at the time that
7: Greece was fudging its statistics.
6: Pascal ami, right-hand man to the father of the euro, says it wasn't just the Greeks. People had questions about the Italians, other countries too. But nobody actually said that
7: because that would have been too unnice to some of their colleagues in the council. There remains a level of diplomatic uh, correctness and politeness.
6: So nobody challenged the Greeks because they were trying to be polite.
7: Exactly it.
6: That's so crazy. It just sounds so crazy now. I mean, I, I understand at the time that might have been so it's what it sounds crazy now.
7: Correct. That's, that's the definition. You just gave a very good definition of a mistake. <laughs> Something you believe is not that a problem, and then you realize, ooh, I shouldn't have done that.
3: There was one other thing keeping all these countries around the table from voicing their objections. Money. Remember, the poorer countries in Europe wanted the benefit of a strong, stable German currency. And Germany wanted customers.
6: Germany makes cars, appliances, high-tech precision machines, lots of stuff. And hundreds of millions of Europeans with the same currency, a strong currency, meant hundreds of millions of customers that just got a lot richer. The more regular people in Greece who could buy a Mercedes, the better for Germany.
3: It would be better for everyone. Together, the feeling was they'd all be more prosperous than they would be on their own. And so, a new currency was born.
5: This brings us to Act Two, Eurotopia. On January 1st, 2002, the euro arrived. The culmination of a 150-year-old dream. The most ambitious financial and political change since money began. Or as the BBC put it. The most ambitious financial and political change since money began. This is a BBC report from January 1st, 2002, when, for the first time in modern history, a huge chunk of the continent of Europe would be using a single currency. You definitely get the sense that, for most Europeans, when they finally got the euro, it felt like something to celebrate. Midnight in Brussels, the moment a new currency was truly born. Plenty were out to celebrate its arrival.
4: I think that it brings the, the countries and Euroland uh, brings them closer together. And I think in, at the beginning there will be many problems, but of course I've, I think it's a good a good thing.
2: Tomorrow in Holland we're going to use money we picked up in Belgium today, and then we'll be in France again the day after, and again it'll be the same money. Um, it's magic. I mean, it's just
5: got to be the way to go. People in the U.S. If we remember the debut of the euro at all, it's with this "oh yeah, that happened" sort of feeling. It's hard to understand what the excitement was all about. But as Hanna jaffe explains, in large parts of Europe, the euro didn't just change the money. It transformed the way people lived.
6: A few months before the euro arrived in Greece, Theophilus Papakostakis was called into a meeting. Theophilus is a bank teller, and this wasn't unusual. The manager was often calling meetings, usually to talk about the overtime policy or some new paperwork requirements. But this was different.
10: So one day after uh, work, uh, he got us together and uh, among other things he said that uh, you should forget what you know soon enough you'll forget everything you know about banking everything's gonna be all new soon it's gonna be like a supermarket people will come in and buy all kind of different things banking is not gonna be only depositing saving money it's gonna be retail you know, I, I specifically remember that expression uh, re- uh retail banking.
6: And when he said that, what did you think?
10: Well, you know, we laughed. He said, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah. Well it did happen.
6: Every morning after that, Theophilus would come into work, turn on his computer, and the interest rate on consumer loans would be lower. 18%, then 15 12 6, 4. Now, the reasons why this was happening, we'll get to in a minute. I first just want to talk about the sheer fact that it was happening and what that fact meant. Imagine if your mortgage rate went from 18 to 4%, or the rate that you could get on a car loan. Most people in Greece never borrowed money to pay for anything before, and now they had people essentially throwing money at them. Theophilus bought two cars. His neighbors bought a vacation home. The neighbors on the other side of the street took out a loan for their vacation and then refinanced that loan. Really, everyone I met in Greece has a story like this. My cab driver, Adonis Barcolis, in Athens.
11: I
10: used to own a Toyota, and in uh, and 2004
8: I bought this, What's this Mercedes.
6: A black Mercedes. The bar that I went to used to have just two restaurants. In 2003, it became an industrial brewery, too. Well,
11: for us, it was fantastic. 2002, when we started uh, building our industrial brewery, uh, in total we have invested about 7 million euro, which is close to 10 million dollars, which is a big amount of money for our company. And uh, this is when we got uh, out in the banks, and the interest rates were very good, of course. We were able to borrow money at uh, 4.5 percent, which is
9: uh, excellent.
6: And it wasn't just private citizens taking advantage of the low rates. Lucas Tsoukalis at the Hellenic Foundation says most importantly, the Greek government got in on the action, mainly by returning to a favorite practice of Greek politicians, addressing unemployment by hiring people.
8: In the last two years, they employed a large number of people in the the Greek public sector. So they added to the salary bill.
6: Doing what? Being like firemen and police or something? Whatever,
8: yes. Yeah, or you create mythical jobs.
6: What's the craziest thing you remember hearing
8: I think there's, for example, an organization which was set up for the drying up of a lake. I think the lake has been dried up for the last 30 years, but the organization is still there. So there are a few employees who are paid for, you know, something that is not even remembered in history book.
6: The euro had arrived, and cheap money was flowing into countries all over Europe. Ireland, Portugal, Spain. There was money for projects which never would have gotten funded before. Luis Garricano is a Spanish economist, and he told me about this tiny little bank that funded a big project in La Mancha, Spain.
8: Your listeners will know La Mancha is the area where Don Quixote lived, and
11: is as empty as it was in the time of Don, Don Quixote. It's a big plain. With an imagine it as completely empty, and in the middle of that plain there is an airport, to which nobody wants to fly.
6: Is that airport open now?
11: It's a potato field. I mean, it's really only suitable for for growing potatoes. That terrain is really never going to be
9: an a commercial airport. I mean,
6: and yet there is an airport. The local people wanted one and the euro gave it to them. It was like the manna from heaven. (laughs) This is Claudia Fahmeyer back in Greece. I met her at a brunch up north, actually at the bank teller's house, Theophilus. Remember the guy who was called into the meeting pre-euro? He invited me to his house, and there, nearly a decade after the euro had arrived, his friends are sitting around just reviewing how everything did really change.
10: One, one day, you, everybody thinks that uh, this is paradise. Let's go get everything. That's what happened.
6: But, why, a, but why, why now? Like, why one year do you not have any money to buy cars and vacations and homes, and then the next year, you have everything you could possibly want? Maybe he knows he was working in the bank. <laughs> I don't know where
3: the money comes from. Do you know?
8: Uh, from... Uh, I
2: don't know. I don't know.
6: Hey, Hannah. Hello, Adam. This is Adam Davidson with Planet Money.
2: I think I can help here because I actually do know who lent all that money to Greece and all the other people in Europe. Uh, I, I actually was in the room where they did it. The room is in Southern California, Newport Beach. It's this huge room and it's all these hundreds of people sitting at these long tables. Each of them is looking at three or four computer screens. One guy had six computer screens with all these numbers flashing on them. Although when you're there, if you closed your eyes, you'd have no idea there were that many people there. This is the quietest room of 200 people I've ever been in. It's a little noisier than usual right now. Is that really true? (laughs) This is the trading floor of a company called PIMCO. And I would guess most of our listeners have not heard of PIMCO, but I can guarantee that every finance minister of every country in the world definitely has, because PIMCO is one of the largest bond fund managers in the world. That means they are one of the biggest lenders of money to governments all over the world.
6: And Adam, let me just jump in for people who need a refresher. Buying a bond is the same as lending someone money. You buy a bond for a million dollars from someone with the promise that they're going to pay you back in full with interest over some period of time. So buying a Greek bond for a million dollars, that's the same exact thing as loaning a million dollars to the Greek government.
2: Yeah, it's like an IOU. And all these people with all their computer screens spend their time figuring out, well, which bonds should we buy? Which governments and also companies should we lend money to? Now, the people at PIMCO, the people at these desks, it's not their money. They're watching over it for a while. They're money managers managing the money for insurance companies, pension funds.
6: If you have a retirement account, right, they might be managing your money. They manage savings for central banks, universities, basically anybody with a huge amount of cash sitting around.
2: Yeah, and if you add up all the money they manage, it's over a trillion dollars. And they don't want to lose any of it. They are looking for safe, sensible governments to lend money to. And for several years after the turn of the millennium, one of the countries, PIMCO, decided, oh, now they're safe, they're sensible, was Greece. Scott Mather is the guy who runs the global portfolio for PIMCO. And he says basically overnight, Greece went from a bad bet to a sure thing. And the reason was the euro. Because of the euro, Scott and all the other money managers for other companies all over the world completely changed how they looked at Greece. It was no longer this one small, poor, dysfunctional country in a corner of Europe. It was now a full member, in good standing, of one of the largest economies in the world, the eurozone.
0: The market was basically giving Greece a benefit of, of, of the doubt uh, because they were a eurozone member, part of the club, for uh, you know the better part of a decade.
2: Going on the euro for a lot of countries was like getting a rich uncle to co-sign a mortgage or a credit card application. Greece, Spain, Italy, Ireland, Portugal, all were allowed to borrow a lot more money at much lower interest rates than they had been before. And that, Hannah, that is why your cab driver could get a cheap loan to buy a Mercedes. It's why a sleepy bank in La Mancha, Spain, could build an airport. And it's why Irish banks grew several times larger than the entire economy of Ireland.
6: And then, quite suddenly, everything changed.
2: Yes, it all changed one day when Khanna, your people in Greece, made a shocking
6: announcement. <laughs> well, Adam, your people in Newport Beach, that was quite a dramatic reaction, don't you think? We'll get to that. Actually, guys, this
5: is a good place for me to step in and say we have arrived at Act 3. And I'll let Pascal Ami, remember the right-hand man to the father of the euro, he's going to give you the act name. Act 3. Ooh, I shouldn't have done that. All right. Take it away.
6: Okay. First, back to Athens, 2009, to the exact moment the crisis in Europe began.
8: What happens is in 2009, we have an election in October.
6: This is Lucas Tsoukalis again with the Hellenic Foundation in Athens. So Greece had been borrowing money from PIMCO in Newport Beach and from others. And then there's an election in Athens. A new socialist government comes to power and says, Greek people, PIMCO, world, we have something to tell you.
8: The previous government was claiming that the deficit of that year was running at something like 6%. The socialists come to power and they announce a few days later, what they have discovered is that the deficit is actually close to 13% and not 6
6: Adam, that's double what they had previously reported. And
2: all those bond traders staring at those computer screens at PIMCO's headquarters in Newport Beach, California, they had lent all this money to Greece based on very specific information. And suddenly that information turned out to be very, very wrong. And they wanted to know, how did this happen?
6: Yeah, and see, the thing is, it's a little hard to answer that question. The Greek politicians explained, the last guys, they lied to you. The deficit was never a 6%. We are telling you the truth. The truth is 13%. But when you ask people at the government statistics office, the very people who come up with the numbers, people like Konstantinos Kordas, they say things like this.
8: Everyone here in Greece said, what number is this? It's uh, It's outrageous.
6: Instead of the Greek statistics office workers saying, we messed up, here's what went wrong, here exactly is how we're going to win back your trust, make sure it never happens again. No, instead, the workers just kind of shrug their shoulders.
8: Nobody knows.
6: But you you guys work in the statistics office. Yes. So, I mean, it just, it seems like, why would you, you're the first people I would expect would know that, would not be surprised by that, because you work here.
8: The people here who were worked about this matter said we did uh, our job very,
1: very correctly. Everybody said, look, these guys clearly cannot be trusted.
6: This again is Jacob Kierkegaard with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And he says at this moment, the people who had lent money to the Greek government were shocked.
1: You know, the situation is much, much worse than what they said, uh, you know, just a few, uh, few days ago. Uh, the reality is much worse than I thought, and therefore, uh, you know, I'm
2: out of here. I'm out of here. Hannah, that is exactly what happened in Newport Beach around this time. The bond guys at PIMCO took action, bond action.
9: We sold all our Greek, Portuguese, and Spanish exposure.
2: This is Mohamed el Arian. he's the CEO of PIMCO and one of the most influential people in the world of bonds. When he starts selling all his Greek bonds, people all over the world pay attention. el Arian must know something, he's really smart. And then everywhere, people are selling their Greek bonds. And what really struck me is how imbalanced things are. For PIMCO, it's just not that big a deal to sell all their Greek, Portuguese, and Spanish bonds. It's a few clicks on a keyboard, moving around a relatively small amount of their overall money. But for the countries whose bonds they're selling, it feels a lot more like the end of the world. Soon, the Greek government had some new bonds they wanted to sell, and they came to PIMCO hoping they'd buy. The Greek government came with lots of offerings. Did they come to you directly?
9: They did come to us directly via our offices in, in Germany and London, and we said thank you, but no thank you.
2: What did they ask? What did
9: they say? They said, we are issuing five, seven, seven billion. Lots of people are participating. Look at how attractive these bonds are. And we said, You mean the interest rates are higher than the rest of Europe? The interest rates are higher not only than the rest of Europe, but they were higher than what they were before. And we said, Thank you very much. We appreciate it. But our analysis shows that sovereign risk is an issue.
2: Sovereign risk is an issue. That's one of those phrases that sounds pretty innocuous and boring, but it hides something really dramatic. It means that for PIMCO, Greece went from being one of the countries that you don't have to worry about to one that might not be able to pay its bills. When money managers worry about a country not paying its bills, things get very weird.
6: Back in Greece, after several years of cheap money, there was no money. Everybody was talking about it. This is Katerina Margaritu, a Greek chemist in Athens. Suddenly,
12: all the, the, they were talking about the Greek crisis. We are in the crisis. We have no money. We are going to to broke. And I was shocked. I didn't know anything.
6: Katerina spent a few weeks after this just feeling winded. She remembers she'd sit on her couch and think about everything that just happened and wonder how it could be that her government overspent so dramatically. She thought about it and she thought, oh, yeah, I guess that unemployed friend of mine finally got a job. We all thought that was never going to happen. Actually, a lot of people got jobs. Oh, and and we got that new subway system. Stadiums,
12: uh, roads, a bridge, (laughs) a very expensive bridge. (laughs) Also, we had uh, the Olympic Games in Greece. We must have spent a lot of money there. Money we couldn't have. I think that that, that was the time I realized that we we borrowed an enormous amount of money that we couldn't possibly pay it back.
6: Here again is Jacob Kierkegaard with the Economics Think Tank.
1: This is the moment in time in which Greece is no longer a solvent country.
6: So the sovereign debt crisis, that's when it started.
1: That is when it starts, yes.
5: Coming up, Facing Life in Prison for Doing Math. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
0: It's American Life from our glass. Today's program, Continental Breakup, the epic story behind what is uh, boringly referred to most of the time as the European debt crisis. It's really the story of the euro, the rise and fall of the euro, how it transferred life for people all over Europe. We've turned over the entire episode today to the Planet Money team. Uh, and as your host, your guide for the hour is Alex Blumberg. Hi, Alex. Hey, so
5: we were in the middle of Act 3, which began, remember, with fireworks commemorating the euro's debut January 1st, 2002. There were people all over Europe celebrating, saying this new currency is like magic. We all now know, of course, that the euro hasn't been working out so great. But there's this amazing moment in that BBC story from 2002. The reporter, Justin Webb, finishes his report, and the anchor asks him one follow-up question. And Justin Webb proceeds to almost perfectly predict the future.
8: Justin, when will it be possible to judge whether the
1: changeover has been a success?
5: Well, the short answer is not today uh, and not in a few days to come either. Although there is a positive mood, it really tells us nothing about the long-term future. We will only know whether this currency is a success when there is a severe economic shock in one eurozone nation and the other nations rally round and the currency survives. That is sometime in the future. So a positive mood today and that is helpful, but the jury is still out. Truer words were never spoken, Justin. The economic shock has arrived in Europe, and it's spreading. Here's Adam Davidson and Hannah walt to pick the story back
2: up. When the Greek government made its shocking announcement about its huge deficit numbers in 2009, that is when the Euro turns from a blessing to a curse. When times are good, the strongest country can make everybody stronger. But when times are bad, the weakest country can bring everybody down. Remember what Mohamed El Arian, the CEO of PIMCO, said he did around the time of that announcement?
9: We sold all our Greek, Portuguese, and Spanish exposure.
2: In other words, we're going to stop lending to Greece, but we're also going to stop lending to Portugal and Spain. Now, Portugal and Spain, they didn't lie about their deficits. In the case of Spain, they'd actually been pretty conservative throughout the decade in the way they handled their finances.
6: But when Greece made that announcement, it shattered the image of the eurozone for people like El Arrian. Instead of seeing all the euro countries as the same, safe, boring, basically, Germany – They saw them all as opposite. They went back to being what they were before, individual countries with individual problems. Some looked like a safe bet to loan money to. Others, maybe they'd get their money back, but maybe they wouldn't. And for those countries, the ones they were worried about, it just gets harder and harder to find anyone to lend them money. It started with Greece, and then...
2: The European debt crisis showing no signs of easing yet. The S&P credit raters say they might downgrade Portugal's credit rating. CNBC...
7: Spanish 10-year bond yields then now at their highest level since 2002 as Eurozone contagion
2: fears continue to ramp up pressure on Spain. You know, whether it's Italy one day or Spain the next, today it's Belgium. And I mean, look at that move. Whoa
5: kind of leaves me speechless. Uh, and so there's another one we're going to have to start to worry about. Yes, indeed. And the spread, by the way, in terms of what Belgium's able to borrow.
6: It used to be before the euro, when times are bad in Greece or Italy or Portugal, when those countries got themselves too deep into debt, they could do something about it. They could create money. They could create drachmas or liras, escudos and essentially use that money to pay off their debts.
2: But now that Greece and Italy and Portugal were part of the euro, it was no longer up to them to create more money. It was up to the institution that controls the euro, the European Central Bank. And when the European Central Bank was created, the Germans insisted, or else they would not join the euro, that the European Central Bank would not do anything that might risk inflation. And creating a lot of euros so that the Greeks and Portuguese could pay off their debts, that definitely risked inflation. So the troubled countries of Europe were stuck.
5: Act four, do-over. It's been over two years since the Greeks made that shocking announcement about their deficit number, and the crisis has been spreading throughout Europe ever since. European leaders have tried a variety of plans to fix things, and typically there's a big announcement about a new solution, things stabilized for a day or two, maybe a week, And then everything gets worse than it was before. But then, just last month, December 9th, 2011, the Europeans came to an interesting and what they described as final plan. The plan was essentially correct the original sin of the euro. Give the rules, those rules all the eurozone countries are supposed to follow but didn't follow, give those rules actual teeth. If countries break the rules, European leaders will send in a SWAT team of technocrats to come in and take over. So now, governments in Spain, Italy, Ireland are scrambling to bring their budgets in line with these rules, cutting down debt, trying to make themselves seem safe, dependable, trustworthy, trying to make themselves seem like the kind of countries the world would be happy to lend money to. Seems like a straightforward plan. And The obvious place to start would be Greece. That was where the crisis first started. And indeed, European technocrats, schooled in the German mindset, are already there trying to fix things. Hannah Jaffe-Walt went to see how it's going so far.
6: The very first place the technocrats went was 46 Piraeus Street, the Greek statistics office, the very building the crisis began in. You remember, the guys who reported, whoops, the Greek government deficit is actually twice what we said before, and then offered this confidence inspiring explanation of what happened.
8: Nobody knows.
6: This is Konstantinos Gordas. You can think of him as sort of the Greek old guard. He, like the majority of colleagues here, have worked in the statistics office for decades. In the summer of 2010, a European technocrat arrived in the building to lead the Greek old guard into this new European world. His name is Andreas Georgiou. He's Greek, but he's been living abroad for decades. And he's kind of a no-nonsense numbers guy, the kind of guy who opens an interview by telling you he'd prefer you disappear.
11: Uh, My goal is to make this a competent, boring institution and not to be in the limelight. Actually, not to have to give an interview like this one.
6: Georgiou has obviously not yet achieved his goal, because here I am, to find out why he hasn't. Because... Quite frankly, his job seems kind of easy. All he has to do is produce a couple numbers, one number, really, the real deficit number for 2009. And just that one job is not going well.
11: Well, things uh, appear to be difficult, actually, in some areas from the very beginning.
6: In the very beginning, August 2010, Giorgio arrived and got straight to the numbers. He was going to calculate the true deficit number. Investors were going to see Greece has this new bureaucrat at the helm. Faith would be restored. But within a few minutes of sitting down with the data, Giorgio realized this was going to take a while.
11: Yes, in order to be able to count what is the deficit and the debt, you have to know what you're counting. Uh, You have to know which institutions belong in this concept called government. So that was, for example, an open question.
6: You might think what is part of government and what is not part of government should be pretty clear. It was not. Giorgio sifted through spreadsheets, and the first thing he found was a national train company that just wasn't included anywhere in the numbers. Then he found a national TV company, then a tourism organization.
11: We found out 17 uh, institutions, uh, large institutions, were left out.
6: Why Why would they have been left out?
11: Uh, I do not know, but this is the situation you asked me what I found. In principle, uh, this should not
6: happen. Finally, at the end of 2010, Girgio and his staff had a new deficit number to report to Eurostat, to the European Statistical Agency. Greek 2009 government deficit, final number, 15.8%. Now, 15.8%, that's even higher than the number that set off the debt crisis. But Eurostat praised his methodology. They blessed his number as true. They said, finally, we have a real grown-up number. Meanwhile, the Greek old guard, they weren't so happy. People like Konstantinos Kordas didn't like having their previous work criticized. They didn't like the new guy, and they definitely didn't like his new deficit number.
8: Everybody said, Oh, what number is this? We expected to discuss this matter. Some peculiar uh, words he told to us, and uh, we had a lot of questions about it.
6: Skordas and several others in the Greek Old Guard insisted that a statistics office board should have been consulted. In fact, the Greeks in this building, they said, should be involved in anything that gets reported to European authorities about how Greece is doing, especially a deficit number. They argued they should get to vote. Giorgio, the technocrat, he saw this as a threat to his independence. He told them, you don't get to vote on this. The number is the number.
11: But then something happened, which was absolutely shocking.
6: Giorgio says a few weeks after he sent the new deficit number to Eurostat, a colleague of Skordas, a prominent member of the Greek Old Guard, sent him a note and asked to see him. Girgio says the two met in a small room adjacent to his office, and the guy from the Greek old guard sat across from Girgio on a couch.
11: And uh, presented me with a document uh, that uh, only existed in an email communication between me and my lawyer through my personal email. And uh, I, said, uh, I said, I didn't say that he has, has hacked into my emails. I said that this is the product of a criminal act. And um, and the answer that I got was that things like that happen.
3: What? Things like what happened?
11: That uh, things that are in my personal email could find their way uh, around. Said so Things like that happen in Greece. And I told him that, uh, no, they don't happen in my country, or at least they shouldn't happen in my country.
6: The old guard, including the man accused, deny this ever happened. And then, the statistics office workers went on strike against the technocrat, against Giorgio. Twice they striked. Mathematicians and accountants holding signs, walking a picket line. At one point, they occupied the building so no one could get in. And then, last fall, Andreas Giorgio got a phone call from a Greek government official.
11: The prosecutor for economic crimes.
6: The prosecutor, Giorgio says explained that the office planned to clarify the contested 2009 deficit number, and he wanted Giorgio's help. Giorgio says he sent over 75 boxes of documents, documents which explained exactly how he came up with his real number.
11: In a few weeks after that, I got uh, another letter asking me to appear in front of the prosecutor. And uh, to my surprise, I, uh, they asked me where my lawyer was. Uh, and I asked uh, why I needed a lawyer, and they explained to me that I was being invited um, as a suspect, not as a witness.
6: In other words, Andreas Giorgio is being accused of a crime
11: something called breach of faith against the state.
1: To me, uh, well, there's no other word for it than insane.
6: This, again, is Jacob Kierkegaard with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And Kierkegaard says members of the Greek Old Guard have alleged Giorgio is colluding with European leaders, that Gheorgio deliberately made the deficit number high so Greece would look bad and European leaders could come in and run things the way they want to. Giorgio faces life in prison. Remember, Kierkegaard says, this is the guy that was supposed to change the public image of the statistics office.
1: I mean, the worst thing you can do if you were trying to restore, uh, you know, outside confidence is, of course, to indict uh, the guy who has been trying to establish credible, defensible and truthful data.
6: If this is the new plan to save the Euro, send in the technocrat to fix things, it does not seem to be going well, at least not in Athens. The technocrat is harassed, his email hacked, he's accused of treason, and he faces life in prison. It is hard to make Greece Germany.
5: This brings us to Act 5. What's a Greek accountant got to do with me? The answer would normally be nothing. Greece is a pretty tiny country, and every other country in the Eurozone is in much better shape than Greece. But that doesn't matter right now. You're going to be hearing a lot about Greece in the next couple of weeks and months. People will be talking about whether Greece can get some of its debt forgiven, whether Greece will get its next bailout. And the thing you need to keep in mind as you hear all this, what those people are really talking about when they're talking about Greece is Italy.
6: It feels like a big leap to go from Greece to Italy.
5: Yeah, Hannah, it really does. And, And so let's just talk through this. I mean, Greece is in much worse shape than Italy, but Italy is next in line. You remember worries about Greece cast the shadow on Portugal, which then cast a shadow on Ireland and then Spain. And at the end of last year, it finally reached Italy. Suddenly, Italy, like Greece and Portugal and Ireland and Spain before it, was having a harder and harder time finding anyone to lend it money at reasonable interest rates.
3: Italian bond yields hitting record levels today as investors express their concern about how and when the country
6: will address its fiscal constraints. And this is the moment where the debt crisis took a really scary turn. Because Italy, Italy is enormous. Italy is the seventh largest economy in the world.
5: I mean, everybody knows Italy is a huge economy. If Italy starts, you know, teetering more than it already is, it's going to be an issue.
7: The situation in Italy is really now getting serious, and uh, I think we are approaching a kind of, of systemic crisis right now that reminds very much to the situation in 2008.
6: 2008, you may remember, that's when the U.S. economy fell apart. And this is why when people say they're worried about Greece, they're actually worried about Italy, because Italy's destiny is now tied to the destiny of Greece.
5: If our last financial crisis taught us anything, it's that relatively small defaults can have very large consequences. The last crisis began, you may remember, with the collapse of a pretty small investment bank, Lehman Brothers. A default in the tiny country of Greece could have similar catastrophic consequences, cause a chain reaction of defaults, ending with Italy. Greece? Greece is the cigarette. Italy is the gas station.
6: And this is where, if you're in the United States and you didn't already care, you might start to care.
5: The United States seems finally to be on a slow, fragile path to recovery. Europe could kill that. It could slow it down. It could stop it. it. could make things worse than they were before. Most days, the crisis in Europe seems like this slow-moving mess that will eventually work itself out. But every once in a while, the question arises, what if it doesn't? Shatajit Das is a risk consultant and former banker. He's spent his life in finance, and he's been following the crisis closely. How scared are you? Uh, I've been doing this for 34 years in financial markets. This is the first time in my life I actually am really worried. Because when you're talking about countries the size of Italy, when you're trying to... This is really, truly one of the scariest moments in my professional life.
6: Das is scared because, in his view, the new plan to save the euro is exactly the opposite of what should be happening. European leaders, he says, largely Germans, are still trying to get countries to obey their rules. Those rules they set up back at the very beginning of the euro to get countries like Greece to cut spending, bring in more in tax revenue, get their budgets in line.
5: But here is what happens when you cut spending and raise taxes. The economy generally shrinks, especially in the middle of an economic crisis. In Spain, the unemployment rate has continued to rise. It's now over 20 percent. That is Great Depression territory. In Ireland and Portugal, it's not much better. Most people think that all of Europe is in a recession right now. And the question is only, how bad will it get?
6: And I have to say, being in Greece, it really does feel like a country on the verge of falling apart. Do you remember Katerina Margaritou, the Greek chemist? The
5: one who went back and remembered, oh, that's all those things that we spent money on that we couldn't right. afford. Right, my friend
6: got a job, we got the subway system. So she actually works as a contractor for the Greek government. You know, about a third of the Greek population relies on the government for a paycheck. And right now?
12: Uh, they don't pay us because they have no money. truth is that uh, the last paycheck was, I took was from July So, my company now owns me the the salary from August, September, October, November, and we are on on December. So, I haven't uh, been paid from July. So, what keeps you going to work? Well, I like my work. Uh, um, You see, every day we work, we bring money to the company so every time we bring money we are increasing the possibility to get paid
6: do you think that you'll get paid the back pay? yes Yes, I'm sure Katerina's boyfriend you can hear him in the background there he is not so sure actually he is absolutely sure there is no way she will get paid and I, I have to say I'm with the boyfriend on this
5: Europe today feels like a far cry from the dream of Victor Hugo, from that exciting scene at the launch of the euro with the fireworks and the people talking about magic. Germans worry now that they are on the hook for bailing out a huge section of the continent. Half of Germans now think the euro was bad for Germany.
6: And that question, whether or not the euro was a good idea, is on a lot of people's minds. It came up with Katerina in Athens. Maybe it's better to go back to drachma. The drachma is Greece's old currency. But this idea, at least to her, is a painful one.
12: I like this whole European family. I like to be a member of this family. We have exchanged ideas and culture all these years, being together. I don't want to leave them. It's my family now, but I don't like their currency.
5: In the effort to keep the family together, there is one other thing that gets talked about all the time as the only real true solution create money. Get the European Central Bank to make a bunch of new euros, which the troubled countries of Europe could use to pay off their debts.
6: But the richest country in the club, the one that is calling all the shots right now, firmly does not want that. And that country, of course, is Germany. Instead, Germany seems much more focused right now on fixing that old mistake, getting the rest of Europe to act more German, the way they wanted when the euro started.
5: The European Central Bank has been making tentative steps in the money-creating direction. But a lot of people say small steps are not enough. They say, in other words, the only way out of this crisis may be for Germany to become even more like the rest of Europe, not the other way around.
0: That was Alex Blumberg. He and Hanna Jaffe Wald and Adam Davidson and Zoe Chase are all part of Planet Money, which is an economics reporting project of This American Life and NPR News. Their podcast where you can get reporting like this twice a week, and their blog are at npr.org money. You know you have come this far. Don't say it. Do the credits.
5: All right. This American Life was produced today by... Ben Calhoun, Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Menhivar, Lisa Pollack, Brian Reed, Robin Simeon, Alyssa Shipp, Nancy Updike, our senior producer is Julie Snyder, Seth Lind is our production manager, Emily Condon is our office manager, production help from Mickey Meek and Matt Kilty, scouting help from Elma Baker, music help from Damien Grave and Rob Geddes. Special thanks to several members of the Planet Money team who helped put this program together, Caitlin Kenny, Jess Jang, and Uri Berliner. Thanks also to Joanna Kakissis, Nikolai Apostolou, Mills Tuison. Jacques Attali, our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ management oversight from our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who I overheard talking with Hannah about today's decision to hand the show over to me.
6: That's so crazy. It just sounds so crazy now. I mean, I, I understand at the time that might have been so, but it sounds crazy now.
7: Cool, I- that's that's the definition. You just gave a very good definition of a mistake.
5: <laughs> Which is weird because when I asked him what it was like hearing me take over the show, this is what he said to my face.
12: It was like the manna from heaven.
5: <laughs> I'm Alex Bloomberg. Come back next week for more stories of This American Life. There's nothing at the bottom of your apologies. Words float like scum across your sweet deeds.
0: When you do as you please It isn't us, it's you who must proceed To love from your best time. Love from your best time.